We're finishing up our, at least the beginning step, uh, phase one of the study of Revelation. And if you have been with us, uh, we've been doing this for, this is the sixth week, and I have a ton of stuff to get through today, so you got to keep me on point. I have to stay with my notes. If I wander over here, somebody over here has got to shoo me back to the podium. If I wander over here, somebody's got to shoo me back and say, Russ, we want to leave time for table discussions. Uh, so work with me there, please. So as we think about Jesus, as we think about the Messiah, if you were in the first service, we heard a lot about the Messiah. What are some of the attributes or some adjectives that would describe Christ and how he relates or deals with people? Like, for instance, Jesus loves people. What are some of those attributes or adjectives that come to mind? This is the interactive part. Compassion. Patient. Mercy, merciful. Judgment. judgment. Yeah, it's not a pretty one. It's not what we like to think about, but yes, judgment would actually be one. You guys hit every one that I had written down here. Humble. Humble was another one. All of those describe attributes of Christ and how he relates to people. Today we're going to look at two churches and we're going to see two extremes of how Christ relates to people when we look at the churches and his messages to Philadelphia and Laodicea. These two churches were living in two vastly different circumstances. They had two vastly different messages from Christ requiring two vastly different responses. Christ had deep love and compassion for the church in Philadelphia. We can contrast that with his feelings on the church at Laodicea. He wanted to spit them out. The church at Philadelphia delighted him. The church in Laodicea disgusted him. Christ brings a strong rebuke with a command to repent to the church in Laodicea. They had become proud and self-sufficient in their great material wealth. He had a message of comfort and commendation to the church in Philadelphia who was serving him in the midst of persecution. From these two churches, we're going to see the need, our need, to hold fast to the word of Christ when we encounter persecution in difficult circumstances. And we're also going to see that those bad circumstances should cause us to draw nearer to Christ. And we're going to see that good circumstances and times of, of wealth and blessing should not cause us to drift, drift from God and to become self-reliant. But before we dive in uh, to the end here in chapter 3, uh, let's look at where we have been. Where have we been? In chapter 1, we looked at and we answered the question, who is Jesus Christ? We saw in chapter 1 that He is God, He is our Savior, He is eternal, He is our identity, He is head of the church, the righteous judge, the Son of Man, and Christ is our comfort. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we saw, we at least before today, we've seen his messages to five churches, the church in Ephesus, where his command was for them to repent and recapture their love for Christ, 
the command to Smyrna to stop fearing, to hold on and receive eternal life, and then commands to repent to the churches in Pergamum where they needed to deal with false teachers, commands to repent to Thyatira, to stop tolerating sin, and his command to Sardis, they needed to repent because they thought they were alive, but they were dead. They needed to wake up and be clothed by Christ. So today we're going to finish these messages, and we're going to be looking at, again, his messages to the churches in Philadelphia and Laodicea. So if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Revelation 3. We're going to start in chapter, excuse me, Revelation 3 in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never, how sh never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot, you, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked." I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. First, let's look at the city of Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia uh, was geographically and topographically, topographically, it was the perfect place for a city. It was situated in a valley with mountains around it. It had direct access to two major trade routes. It was suitable to be a fortress city uh, in that region, uh, so it would be very good uh, for military defenses. The city was well known for its vineyards, 
So it's not surprising that they worshipped Dionysius, who is the god of wine. It is also known for its textile and leather industries. This church was actually the longest-lasting church of any of those churches in that region. The church in Philadelphia was uh, in existence until the 14th century. In this message, Jesus describes himself as the Holy One and the True One. He is the righteous, sinless Son of God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the true Messiah. He tells them that he is the holder of the key of David. That's an allusion to Isaiah 22:22. 22. Um, let's go back there, um, if you want to turn with me real quick, and we're going to read about this key and Eliakim. So in Isaiah 22:22, 22, it says this, "And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, he being Eliakim." He shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. Sounds familiar, right? What was going on in Isaiah is Eliakim, the key that he had, the key to the house of David, was the key to the treasury of Israel, where the national warehouse of their treasure. The key of David that Christ holds is the key to our treasure, to his treasure, and that can be seen as our salvation. Christ holds the key to eternal life. 1 Peter 1 tells us that salvation is a treasure that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, and that our faith is more precious than gold. Now, this is a different key than the one that we saw in chapter 1. If you remember, in chapter 1, it talked about Christ having a key. Does anybody remember what that key was? It wasn't the key of David. Nobody? Anybody? I'm not going to take a stab. It was the key of death and Hades. And if you remember when we talked about that, that was several weeks ago, uh, but that Christ is the one who determines who dies when they die, right? That's the key of death and Hades. This is a different key. This is the key of David, the key to eternal life. And again, it's a picture of his sovereignty. Christ is the determinant of who enters heaven. No one comes to the Father but through me, right? John 14, 6. He controls who enters. He controls when the door is open and who the door is open to. He controls who the door is closed to. So these descriptions of Christ to this church in Philadelphia essentially mean you can trust my message. You can trust what I'm about to tell you. So what about Laodicea? Laodicea was the wealthiest city in that region. Tremendous wealth. It was located at the, at the junction of two major trade routes. It was the center for banking in the region. It was a large producer of wool and fabric, and especially a soft, luxurious black wool that was sought uh, after by everyone. Everyone wanted the Laodicea wool. Um, it was home for a school of medicine, um, interestingly. Uh, it is where, if you're familiar with compounding, uh, compounding was first developed in Laodicea. And they had created an eye salve that was used to cure a number of eye ailments uh, of the day. Now, history recorded that there was an earthquake in the first century, somewhere around 60 to 61 AD. The city was so prosperous that when Rome, they were part of the Roman Empire, and earthquakes were common in that time, so it was also very common for Rome 
to provide assistance to a city to rebuild, sort of the FEMA of the day. Well, when Laodicea was destroyed by earthquake, they refused help from Rome. We're so wealthy, we don't need your help. We can take care of it ourselves. That's kind of giving you an, attitude, uh, an idea of the prevailing attitude in Laodicea. Another very interesting thing about this city was, although it was very wealthy, they had no viable water source. They were not near a major body of water. Uh, you can see that demonstrated there, not there, there. Uh, so here's Laodicea, the Lycus River, which ran through Colossae uh, and Heropolis. Well, in Heropolis, there were hot springs. And in Colossae, was, had very cold water uh, because the water and the river was fed from ice melt off in the mountains. What had to be a great engineering feat, they created viaducts that ran underground from Hierapolis and from Colossae to Laodicea. Well, what can you guess after going through several miles of concrete, you know, first century viaducts, the hot springs, by the time that they got to Laodicea, what was that water like? It wasn't hot. What about the cool water coming from Colossae through those viaducts? It wasn't cold. No, it was lukewarm. It was lukewarm. So when Jesus is telling them he wishes they were either cold or hot and that they're lukewarm, they would know, they would have a picture in their mind exactly what he is talking about. So Jesus describes himself to the church at Laodicea as the amen, the faithful and true witness. What does amen mean? Anybody? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Karis is right there. So be it. Very good. Yeah. So be it. Amen is the, the final word. This is how it is. Um, it's verity and certainty and credibility. So Jesus is telling that he is the amen. He is the faithful and true witness. Jesus is full of truth. He is the fulfillment of truth. He is, therefore, the ultimate witness for truth. He is the utmost in faithfulness. And again, this speaks to the reliability of his message and the trustworthiness of his word. The truth of all scripture uh, is affirmed through Christ and by Christ. And this is in contrast to false teachers who were teaching and preaching an unbiblical and untrue Christ in Laodicea. And we'll get to that in a second. Again, he calls himself, and this is something very interesting, he says he is the beginning of creation. And this is getting to that heresy. We know there was a heresy in nearby Colossae because of Paul's letter to the Colossians. The heresy was that Jesus was a created being. And Paul wrote in his letter to them in chapter 1, He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been given... Excuse me, where I lost my place. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. That's Colossians 1, 15 through 18. The Greek word translated both there in Colossians 1 and here in Revelation 3 is arche, and that word means that by which anything begins to be. 
the origin or the active cause. So what is being said here is not that Jesus was the beginning, that he was the created one, that he is the creator. He is the originator. He's not the origin, he is the originator. And that is to contrast that heresy that was being taught. And because of the proximity of Colossae and Laodicea, it's not uh, a stretch, and it's proper to infer that that same heresy that was going on in Colossae was going on in Laodicea by the time that Christ is sending them this message. Because we see also in, that, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, there are a couple of references where they were instructed to share that letter with the church in Laodicea. We see that especially in chapter 4. So, the credible, faithful, trustworthy creator of the universe is bringing the church in Laodicea this message. Clearly, they need to listen because what he has to tell them is going to be shocking. But before we get there, let's go back to Philadelphia. And let's see what Jesus knows. Jesus tells them, I know. Jesus had no rebuke for the church in Philadelphia. He, he, there was one other church that he didn't have a rebuke for that didn't need to repent. Does anyone remember which church that was? Smyrna. Yeah, it was Smyrna. However, he did tell them the church in Smyrna they needed to do something. Anybody remember? Something about hold out and that Satan's going to come and test you or something? He did tell them that. Um, but he specifically, if you remember, he said, stop fearing. Stop fearing. So while he didn't tell them to repent, he did have a command for them, something that they weren't doing that they need to do. We don't see any of that with Philadelphia. He doesn't have any sin that needs correction. He knows their works and their deeds. Again, we see this idea of an open door. It says he set an open door before them. Typically in Scripture, when it's used this way, an open door is an opportunity for ministry. And if you read through the book of Acts, you will see several times a reference being made to a door being opened to Paul and to others for ministry. It could also be an open door for salvation. It could be an opening into the kingdom. Christ tells them that he knows they have little power. And the little power here is likely a reference to their size, to the, to the size of the church. They were small in number. In the face of a large community that hated them, that was persecuting them, the believers that made up that tiny church were standing up for the Savior. Because they were little in number, they likely had very little influence in the city. Life would have been difficult. It's, it's amazing how the Spirit kind of... Uh, works together uh, the sermon and, and the message here, and you can see sort of cross-application, um, some of what Brett was preaching about earlier. Uh, life would have been hard for the believers in Philadelphia. But even in spite of that, they kept his word and did not deny his name. That was in the midst of persecution, although it's not spelled out specifically in the text. Uh, we can, from the context, understand that they were being persecuted. Keeping his word meant they needed to tend to his word carefully. Uh, and in, in other words, they needed to observe it and obey it. He's just simply talking about obedience. He knows that they have been obedient to his word. And he knows that they did not deny his name. In spite of all that they were going through, they continued to obey the word and to share the gospel. 
They didn't deny His name in the face of persecution. Three little words would have gotten them off the hook. Caesar is Lord. That's all they would have had to say. They didn't really have to mean it. That's all they just could have said it. But that would have been denying the name of Christ. Remember, if I shared the story of Perpetua who died in the Colosseum in Carthage and her father's pleading with her, all you have to do is say Caesar is Lord. And remember she said, do you see this vase? If you could call it by any other name, you know, you can't. You know, neither can I call myself anything but a Christian. That was the church in Philadelphia. They didn't accept the heresy. They held to what they'd been taught. Christ is God and Christ is Lord, not Caesar. So God promises them that He's going to deal with their persecutors, their enemies, this synagogue of Satan. And we saw the synagogue of Satan, um, as Micah pointed out, uh, when we looked at his message to Smyrna. These were Jews who were persecuting the church, but they weren't true Jews because they had rejected the Messiah. Some look at this idea of this synagogue of Satan and this bowing down at the feet of the believers um, as their humiliation and his punishment of the enemies. And other commentators look at this and they see this as a group of these Jews who were later converted, who did repent, and they are now paying homage to the believers that they had been persecuting. In either view, there was going to be a day coming when the persecution would end and the people that were harming them would be bowing at their feet. So, Again, that's amazing coming back to, to Brett's sermon. There is hope on the horizon. Jesus tells them that he knows that they have been faithful to him in the face of persecution. And we've talked about what some of the persecution in that day had looked like, which could have included the loss of their possessions, the inability to make a living, to hold down a decent job, uh, to get thrown into prison, and in many cases, their death. That's the persecution that they were facing. But because of their faithfulness, and because they were patiently enduring, Jesus makes them another promise, that they would be kept from the hour of testing that is coming upon the whole earth. Now, some scholars incorrectly view this hour of testing as something that was unique to the church in Philadelphia and something that was going to occur on a small scale. That is an erroneous view. Because Robert Thomas, the commentator, points out there are other Greek words that could have been more appropriate to use to... Well, I'm sorry, I've lost my place. Back up, forget that. Um, some scholars view this uh, as unique to Philadelphia or a general statement of future troubles. But the grammar here shows that this hour of testing is a very specific hour. So this is a specific future event but it also says over the whole world, right? Which clearly shows that this is not something that's occurring somewhere locally. This is, a, this is an event, a future event, that's going to encompass the whole earth. This is the tribulation. This is the pouring out of the wrath of God that God is going to keep them from. Now, as I was about to get to earlier, some see this idea of keeping them from the tribulation and from the wrath of God as that God will protect them during and in and through the tribulation. But commentator Robert Thomas point out that the grammar, there would have been other Greek words that would have been better to use there to demonstrate a protection within the tribulation as opposed to 
a removal of, which is what is being said here. Jesus is promising this church they will be removed from the tribulation, that it will not, uh, they will not have to go through it. Um, and, you know, it's also just contextually uh, being protected from instead of being removed from the tribulation would have been little comfort to this church in Philadelphia who was already experiencing persecution and tribulation. Um, so that would have been, you know, it's like, well, how about now, right? Um, it's not, uh, not as much of a comfort. It's better to view and it's best to view that this idea of keeping them from as a complete exemption and removal. Believers are taken out of the trouble to come. This is one of the passages that we talked about when we introduced the book of Revelation, which is why I and, and why Calvary believes and teaches in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Jesus will come and meet, and the church will be removed from the earth before the seven-year tribulation begins. And this is one of the texts, as well as several in First and Second Thessalonians, uh, that demonstrate that. And remember, the, a key part of that is, what is the purpose of the tribulation? Anybody remember when we talked about that? What's God's purpose in the seven-year tribulation? What's He doing? He is pouring out His wrath on sin. As we just heard in the first service, for believers... Is God going to pour his, are they going to have to experience, or believers, are we going to experience the wrath of God? No. Why not? Jesus has already paid for it. Double, as we just heard, right, from Isaiah. The wrath of God has already poured out on the sins of those who believe in Christ. Believers in Christ are not going to have to experience the wrath of God again. Believing that, saying that, is to say what Jesus did, the, the pouring out of God's wrath on Christ, wasn't enough to pay for our sins. And that's not the proper view. So, Jesus has promised this church in Philadelphia they will not have to go through the tribulation. He tells them that I am coming quickly. Jesus also told churches at Ephesus, Pergamum, and Sardis that he was coming. The idea of Jesus coming quickly, and you know, he told the church at Sardis that he was coming like a thief. What do you think the churches that he told to repent and that had sin issues, what do you think they thought about the fact that Jesus was coming soon? Far-off event. They, maybe that it was a far-off event. Would they have been happy about that? No, that's a warning. That would not have been a comforting thought. But to Philadelphia, it is 100% a comforting thought. They would have taken this idea that Jesus was coming quickly to be a great comfort. This church would have great hope in his quick return. Those other churches would have feared the quick return of Christ. Jesus tells them to hold fast so that no one takes or steals their crown. Again, this is the victor's crown that we have talked about several times. Stephanos in the Greek, it's the olive wreath that the winner of the games would receive, so to speak. Um, this crown could be salvation, eternal life, uh, but it could also be a reference to eternal rewards. They needed to keep working, keep growing, don't backslide, 
And the idea of having their crown stolen would be the loss of a benefit. In other words, he's saying, keep growing in Christ, hold on, I'm coming, don't lose your reward. Keep earning those eternal rewards. Don't lose it because you stopped pursuing Christ. Philadelphia didn't have any sin to repent of. They just needed to hold on a little longer. Help was on the way. That was not the case in Laodicea. Jesus knows. What does Jesus tell Laodicea that he knows? It was nothing good. He knows their deeds, and he knows that they're not cold or hot, that they are lukewarm. What does it mean to be lukewarm? What do you think that means? Okay, yeah. Yeah, maybe a Sunday morning Christian. I'll be a Christian and I'll come to church, but I'm going to live my life the way that I want to the rest of the week. A hearer of the word, but not a doer. Exactly. Lukewarm. Good moral people posing as true Christians. They were fence riders. They were indifferent and compromising. Again, they'd act one way on Sunday and a different way on Monday. So what about this hot and cold? What do we think Jesus is talking about when he tells them that he wishes that they were either cold or hot? And it may shock you to know that there is disagreement among biblical scholars about exactly what is meant here. Now, there is pretty much consensus, at least on reliable commentators, about what it means to be hot. What do you think it means to be hot? It's not a trick question. On fire for Jesus. Yeah, zealous. Loving Jesus, living it out. You know, those people are pretty easy, easy to do, identify with, right? Um, the Jesus freaks is a, you know, one of the things. They are on fire for Christ. Zeal for the Lord. The disagreement comes with what is meant by cold. Now, some see cold as a complete rejection of Christ. They are non-believers, open non-believers, hostile to the gospel. That's what is meant here by cold. Others believe that the cold is... I'm sorry, did you have a question? <clears throat> It could be because one of the views um, is that the hot and cold, so for instance, if you go back to the map and you think about it, is hot water good? Does it have a purpose? Sure. Who likes a hot shower? Most days, yeah. Um, is cold water good and useful? Yeah, you know, if you've been out and you're sweating, have the sweat of the brow, you want some cold water. So hot and cold water are useful. And so there are some commentators who think that Christ is referring. He's like, I wish you were useful. I wish you were useful hot, or I wish you were useful cold. I tend to believe that that's not what Jesus is, seeing, is mentioning here. There are very good arguments for both sides, lots of pros and cons. Um, but the reason I believe that this is uh, that the hot, of course, is zealous, 
and that the cold is uh, open hostility, rejection of Christ, um, is because the most dangerous thing to the church are people who profess that they're Christians, but they're not, because their witness is terrible. Because they're out living like the world, so that's what the world thinks a Christian is. And that disgusts Jesus. That's why I believe that that's what Jesus is referring to here. Wherever you land with the meaning, there can be no dispute about the result. The lukewarm believers disgusted him. And that's extraordinarily strong language. What it's saying is Jesus wants to vomit them out of his mouth. Gross, but the point gets across. These lukewarm Christians disgusted him. People who claim to be Christians but really aren't are dangerous. Uh, commentator David Guzik says, By trying to be hot and cold, by playing the middle, they end up being nothing. And he says, Satan will have us any way he can get us, but he prizes a lukewarm religionist far above a cold-hearted sinner. Did you get that? Satan prizes a lukewarm religionist far above a cold-hearted sinner. Jesus would rather us just be openly rejecting him than saying that we love him and then living like we don't. Because the second one is what is dangerous to the kingdom of God. So what led to their lukewarmness? We get an idea in verse 17. Jesus tells them, You say I'm rich, that I have prospered and I need nothing. They worshiped the gods of comfort and prosperity. They had no need of God. And that flies in the face of the teaching of Scripture. You know, their circumstances led them to believe that they didn't need God. They were proud and self-sufficient. Listen to 1 Timothy 6.17 and the warning against that. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And what about the words of Job? This is in Job 31, starting in verse 24. If I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment, for I would have denied God above. And that is exactly what the church at Laodicea had done. They had denied God. 1 Timothy 6, 17. And there's some surrounding context there, but that was the verse that we read. And that's Job 31, 24 through 28 is the other reference. And there are multiple others that we could have used. The people that made up this church thought they were okay. I'm good. We're wealthy. We are blessed. Life is great. They had money. They had the finest wool. They were the headquarters for the best medical care. People from all over that region went to Laodicea if they were ill. That's where they wanted to go to get treatment. They thought that their wealth was an indicator of God's blessing, but it wasn't. They were poor, naked, blind, wretched, spiritually. Commentator Thomas again, their alleged spiritual prosperity was actually spiritual poverty. Jesus wants to, them to know they do not have an accurate view of themselves. 
He is the amen, the faithful and true witness, and his assessment is true. Their assessment is not. They think they're fine and acceptable to Christ, and he tells them that you disgust me. Strong language. What did he call them? Look again at 17. Wretched, poor, blind, naked, pitiable. Wretched is the same word that Paul used to describe himself in Romans 7.24, if you're familiar with that passage, O wretched man that I am. It means miserable and afflicted. He calls them pitiable. Your translation may say miserable or pitiful. And then notice and, uh, the beauty of, of how Jesus uses you know, their, their city. He weaves in those three major industries of the city to give them a picture of their spiritual condition. Right? They were, they were poor, not wealthy, like their big banks, right? They were naked, not like the fine black wool that everybody wanted. And certainly they were blind when they had the eye salve that would cure the eye ailments. They think they're rich, but they're poor. There was so much wealth that when a disaster struck, they refused assistance. They were prideful. They were blind to their true spiritual condition. You know, their pride had blinded them of their need for God. Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers, and only the gospel of Christ can open their eyes. Right? They aren't clothed with their fine wool. They're naked. You know, we see that in a lot of Paul's writings that he talks about putting on Christ, right? Putting on righteousness. We see that as a picture in the Bible. And that's the message here. They weren't righteous. They weren't living righteous lives. We don't need to be clothed like the world is clothed. The spiritual condition of this church is a far, far cry from what they thought they were. And this message from Jesus should be a wake-up call. So let's go back to Philadelphia. What does Jesus promise this faithful little band of persecuted believers? He promises the overcomers, the true believers in Christ, that they will be a pillar in his temple. Did I go away? I lost my. Oh, sorry. When you look at pictures of ruins from ancient cities, what do you see often? What's left? The pillars. The pillars. And when an earthquake would have hit this region, most of the time what was left were nothing but the pillars. It's because pillars were strong, foundational uh, parts of the construction. And that's the picture here, that these believers that, believers that overcome would be a pillar in his temple. It's a picture of the enduring place in the kingdom, eternal security, and our stability in Christ. And then he says that he's going to write three names on them. He's going to write the name of my God. I'm going to write the name of a new city, the new Jerusalem. And then I'm going to write on them my new name, my new name. So what are these names? He's going to write on them the name of my God. And that is a picture of our adoption or the adoption of believers into God's family. You know, we know that when we come to Christ by faith that we become adopted as sons and daughters into God's family. He's going to write on them the name of the new Jerusalem. And we'll see more about this in Revelation 21 when the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven. 
but that's an evidence of their citizenship in this new city. They're going to have that new city written on them. This, they will be identified as a citizen of heaven. And then my new name. And most commentators see that as a picture of having complete understanding of Christ. We only dimly see Christ now. But when we see Him in heaven, when we see Him in eternity, we will see Him as He truly is. We will see His new name. And that is a picture of that. That is what is there for the overcomer. It signifies that we are marked, branded, and identified with Christ when we overcome. And it's a beautiful, wonderful picture of the eternal security of the believer. Once, we, once Christ holds us, no one can snatch us out of his hand. No one was going to snatch this church out of his hand. You see, he tells them when he's talking about the temple, uh, never shall he go out of it. There's eternal security for the overcomer. What about Laodicea? Is there any hope there? Yes. Yes, there is hope. They can repent. Their conditions, their blindness, their nakedness, their poverty was not terminal. You can't buy that from Jesus, though, right? Because what does he tell them? Buy from me. The market, they had a huge market in the city of Laodicea. It was actually attached to the medical school there. Um, he's telling them, don't go, don't keep buying your goods from that market. Buy from me what you really need. What do they need to buy? They needed to buy from Christ gold refined by fire. They needed to buy garments and clothing. And then they needed to buy eye salve from him. So the purchase of this gold refined by fire can be seen as purity, right? The fire, if anyone ever seen a picture of gold in a crucible, you know, the crucible gets heated up and it bubbles up and all of the dross, the bad stuff gets burned off and what is left is pure gold, pure gold, purity. That can only be purchased from Christ. The purchase of white garments uh, can be seen as divine righteousness. And this is a picture we've seen before as we've studied some of these messages, right? And study of who Christ is. The white garment is the, the holiness and the righteousness of Christ. It's the new nature that we have positionally in Christ when we receive him. They needed to throw off the world and to put on Jesus. They were living and they were stained by the world, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. They lacked righteousness. And they needed to purchase eye salve from Christ that would cure their spiritual blindness so that they could have accurate sight of their true spiritual condition. They lacked true discernment, and they can only get that from Christ. But again, their hope, there, there is hope there. They weren't terminal. Christ tells them that those he loves, he will discipline. And that's... Greek word for love there was phileo. We might have expected it to be agapio or agape. Phileo was a brotherly, affectionate love. Christ still has warm feelings, warm love for these hypocrites. He still loves them, and if they would repent, they could have him fully. That love that he has for them should motivate them to change. That word for discipline means to train, 
by inflicting calamity. No pain, no gain. Jesus disciplines those he loves. It's punishment for the purpose of teaching. They needed to repent and to let the love of Christ kindle a zeal, to kindle that fire to change them from being cold and from being lukewarm to being hot. They needed to change their minds that would produce a change in behavior. That is biblical repentance. They are wretched, and they need amazing grace, right? They were blind. They need to see. Jesus loved this church, and His love compelled His rebuke of them and His command for them to change. Next, we see that Jesus tells them that He is standing at the door and knocking, and if they will open, that they can come and dine with Him or sup with Him, have supper with Him. Now, there is probably as much debate about the true meaning and the application of this passage as there is in anything in Revelation, much less anything in Scripture. A lot of people see this, and, and you, you may have even heard this, uh, evangelistically, and, and maybe even use this. You know, Jesus is telling you that he's, he's standing and knocking at the door of your heart, if you will just open up to him. Some people see this as a super specific message to the church at Laodicea. Um, we don't have time to get into the debates and to go through all of the possibilities here this morning. But what I wanted us to see is that Christ is available for the Laodiceans if they will repent. All they had to do was repent, and they could come and be with Him. And that's the same message that's true for everyone. If we will repent of our sins, if we will put our trust and faith in Christ and His finished work on the cross, we can sup with Him. It's the picture of the wedding supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb that Jesus talks about in the Gospels. A uh, similar promise was given to the church at Thyatira, uh, to the overcomer, that he can sit with him on his throne just like he sat with the Father on his throne. And it's a picture of how we will reign with Christ. Believers will reign with Christ for eternity in his kingdom. So what is our response to all this today? How do we take these two messages and apply them for us today? Well, from Philadelphia, we don't see that they were doing some great, extraordinary work, right? Jesus doesn't talk about this great crusade they have. They weren't a megachurch, clearly. They were simply obedient and faithful in the midst of difficult circumstances. They didn't back down or drift away when the culture around them was pushing them to deny Christ. Being a biblically faithful Christian, being a biblically faithful church, isn't complicated. It's simple, but it's not easy. We just need to trust and obey, just like the church in Philadelphia. How would they be able to do that? How can we trust and obey in difficulty? You know, because of the hope that we have in Christ, Jesus reminded Philadelphia, it's a reminder for us today, that true hope, true safety, true reward is in Him alone. It's in Christ alone. It's not in the world's ways and riches. When we keep our eyes fixed on Him, we can endure difficulty in a way that pleases Him. And that's beyond even persecution. You know, the difficult times that, you know, Pastor Brett was talking about, life is hard. And we, can we all identify that with that? And, and in one way or another, life can be hard. Uh, when we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, we can endure difficulty in a way that pleases Him, especially 
when we're being persecuted. Difficult circumstances can be a temptation to forsake Christ, right? To deny Him or reject Him. It also be a temptation to believe that He has abandoned you. Anybody been, ever been going through something and thought, God, where are you? Right? It can, we can be tempted to think that way, to blame Him and get angry. But when we understand the teaching of Scripture, when we go to the Bible, we know that we're not promised that life will be sunshine and rainbows. Uh, we're promised that we will face difficulty. And the church in Philadelphia is a fantastic example of holding fast to the Word of God and persevering even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. How about Laodicea? They looked like they were blessed. They had great material wealth. And it's a lot of the people that, and if you remember, I talked about um, when we started Revelation and the study that uh, many uh, scholars look at these letters to these seven churches as applicable of the church through the ages. And many of them who hold that view look at this church at Laodicea, and it's hard to dispute that it sure does look a lot like the church in America and the church in the West today. Right? Great material wealth. We, we are, if, if you have ever been in a foreign country, uh, you know that the people that are living in most every other place on the planet don't live like we do. We have it far, far better here than they do. Laodicea had great material wealth, and they show us that there is great danger in prosperity. It can give us a faulty picture of our true spiritual condition. They thought they had everything that they needed, but they truly had nothing that they needed. They were lost and they needed to be found. They were blind and they needed to see. When life is good and things are going our way, we need to be thankful. We need to remember that it is from God that we receive every good and perfect gift. Apart from Him, we can do no earthly good. God owns everything, and we are merely His stewards. So the gifts, the money, the talent, our time, those things that He gives us, we are to be stewards of them and to use them for eternal good and for His glory. That's what earns us eternal rewards. That's buying from Him pure gold. We have to be humble and know that apart from Christ, again, we can do nothing. Anything good in me comes from Jesus. I think Pastor Barnett used to say that all the time. If you see anything good in me, it's Jesus. The rest of it's me. And that is true for all of us. The temptation and persecution, again, is to believe that God has abandoned you. That it's not worth it to follow Christ. To give up. The temptation and prosperity is to believe that I'm doing everything right. Man, how good am I? That I'm self-sufficient. I can do it all by myself. We mistake our good circumstances as a blessing from God. In either case, the response is to keep our eyes, turn our eyes to Christ. In persecution, hang on and keep on. Persevere, patiently endure. Trust Christ and abide in Him. And believe and know that better days are coming. And the truth of His Word tells us that there are better days coming. In prosperity, the response is to repent of pride and self-reliance. Realize that we can take nothing out of this world. We need to be storing up treasures in heaven and not treasures on earth. 
turn our eyes to Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will go strange, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So I'm going to close this in prayer, and then we've got a few minutes to discuss at our tables these questions. So let me pray, and then you guys can chat about these questions for a few minutes. Father, thank you uh, for the picture that we get in these messages uh, to these churches of who you are, that you are faithful, true, holy, righteous, that you are the Son of God, that you are eternal, Lord, and that you are faithful and, and trustworthy, that we can trust your messages and the things that you've said to these churches. Lord, in some way, uh, the rebukes and, and the commands to repent that were shared with these churches are likely true of, of all of us in some way. Lord, in, in, in some sin in our life, uh, Lord, that we can identify with uh, in these churches, Lord, uh, please reveal that to us. Lord, that your Spirit would show us where we need to repent. And Lord, help us to humbly turn to you and to follow you, Lord. Uh, while that's true, there's also truth that in many cases, Lord, our lives are, are displays of the good that you saw in, a, in some of these churches, Lord, that, uh, that we are being faithful. Thank you, Lord, uh, for your, your praise and your commendation. And Lord, we understand that if we are faithful in, in the good things that we have done, uh, they can only be done uh, through you and by you in us. Uh, so Lord, in that, uh, we give great thanks and praise to you for how you have used us to further your kingdom. So, Lord, I just pray that as we go now and, and discuss these things and, and as we go out into the week ahead, bring the things that we've heard your word to mind. Uh, Lord, let the spirit uh, that dwells in us, uh, Lord, uh, guide us. Uh, bring the word that's hidden in our hearts up. And, and, Lord, to teach and instruct us how better to obey you, how better to uh, display your glory uh, to a world that desperately needs to know you. Uh, so be with us now as we discuss and as we go, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.